consent or if he has to continue to wait. And for the vast majority of us here, we don't have that every day. We get up and we may have some aches and pains, but our life, our very life, is not in peril. So we would pray that you would provide for Brian in an only way that you can. And we pray for Ted Lindy as well, who's recovering from surgery after a broken hip. We ask that you would allow him to heal well, to heal well and heal quickly. So, Father, we ask these things. We pray that your, your presence would be here. We pray that in heaven, when the, the name of Linden Community Church is, is, is spoken, that it would be a place where Jesus Christ is pleased to dwell. That the Holy Spirit would look at this place with favor, that would come in here and say, this is where your word is proclaimed faithfully. This is where people's hearts are sensitive towards the things of God. So we pray, Father, that this would be true, that we would work on being sensitive to the Spirit, that we would be obedient when your word comes before us, whether it convicts or whether it confirms. So we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd open your Bibles, as we have for the last several weeks, we're continuing on in the Beatitudes. And, and I think I've reached a new milestone this week. I think I have the longest uh, bulletin outline ever. And Jenny was good enough to, to fit it all on there. And there's some things I thought were kind of uh, interesting and important. So she put those in there, and we're going to kind of work our way through it. And this is the fourth. This is the fourth of Christ's six great illustrations on true morality. This is the fourth one. When we looked at, starting in verse 21, we see that anger is equal to murder. Anger is equal to murder. Lust equates to adultery. Faithfulness is in marriage. And now we're going to talk about honesty in speech. Honesty in speech. So I hope you got all those points there in the, in the outline if you're so inclined to fill those in. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the, the passage first of all, and then we can kind of talk about some things that are surrounding and directly applicable to this passage. And I'm going to be reading in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 33. And this is going to be the one, two, the fourth one out of six where we hear Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, and then he's going to stop and say, but I tell you, which was totally unheard of in that day because the rabbis, rabbi means teacher, they would fall in line with previous teachings and they would never say on their own a change of what had been taught in the past. So it reads, again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths you have made to the Lord. But I tell you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of our great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair white or black. Simply, let your yes be yes, and your no, no, anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So since the fall of mankind, we'll take it, all the way back to Genesis and even before, we see that, that Satan was created as an angel of light. He was one of God's finest creations, and you can read about this in Isaiah. One of his finest creations, and we see that, 
that Satan fell, and now Satan is known as the father of lies. That is one of his, he's known as the deceiver and a whole host of other names, but one of them is he is the father of lies, and since this passage is, talks about deception or lying or taking of oaths or things like this, it is helpful for us to look that when Adam and Eve were in the garden, Satan came and he deceived. He says, is it really true that you will not become like God? And we know that, that Eve partake first and then Adam partook and then they were deceptive. And there are kids, Cain and Abel, we see Cain was deceptive. And we see it all the way through the Old Testament about the deception. And we even can see it now when kids are born, it says we are born in sin, and you ever have to teach a kid to lie? Never do. They will learn that really well on their own, and if you don't, what I will just generally say, purge that from them, they can grow up to be a little liar. And some kids, and I've had experience with them, are really, really good at it. They're really good at it, and you, you want to... To me, I, I've told our kids, you probably told your kids, if you lie to me, it's going to be twice as bad. And it was, maybe even worse. And they realized, don't, don't lie to me. If it's bad, it's bad. Okay, we'll deal with it. But don't lie to me. Don't ever lie to me. Same thing with Sal. You, you didn't lie to her. And if you did, there is a price. <laughs> our whole society is largely based on a network of fabrications or manufactured truths. The truth is shaded. People cheat. They exaggerate. They misrepresent. They'll promise with no intent of keeping it. They'll make excuses. They'll betray confidences and many as a matter of normal, everyday living. That's just kind of the society that we're in. Much of business, politics, and government the educational system, science, religion, and even family life is built on falsehoods and half-truths. This, this pulpit is not going to become a political forum. I'm only just speak facts and just let them fall. Isn't it interesting that Trump just is in the process of suing CNN for publishing lies, what he would call fake news? It's, it's current. It's all the time. And whether you agree with it or you disagree with it, it is actually a fact. He is suing. So there you have it. So maybe it'll be found to be true. Maybe it won't. That's not my concern. But my concern is all throughout the society, we have half-truths and innuendos. Yet even the most corrupt and deceptive societies have always realized that in certain areas, certain areas at least, the real truth is necessary. And you can have this, I'll take just two particular areas. Obviously, one that I'm really familiar with is in court, is you, they take the truth very, very seriously, and you would never, ever lie in court. In fact, I, I worked with a guy for a number of years that he did go to court, and you, if you lie, it's all taped. Everything, everything's right there. If you say, well, I didn't lie, we play the tape. It's right there. It's black and white. And he lied, and that was the last day he worked for the patrol. He's fired. I mean, just like that, you're gone. So I've been to court before, and when I was before Judge, Judge Ross, he had a very interesting way. Is he would say, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you? 
he did that on my entire career. He never, he was not a believer, and he never added the word God. And it's not my place to question him, although in my head I'd go, that's very odd. He wouldn't do that. I was in court one time, and a person came in here, and they used this passage. They says, do not swear at all, even by heaven. And they, they started to expound, and it was a miniature sermon, and, and Judge Ross really didn't want any of it. And so he said, he said, you will not swear to tell the truth? He says, no, I won't. He says, because we're not allowed to swear. And he says, will you affirm that you'll tell the truth? And they went back and, will you affirm? Will you promise? Will you concede? He's trying to use other words. And finally they came to kind of a tense stalemate. The guy says, well, I will, I will certainly tell you that I'll tell the truth, but I won't swear to it because he was using this passage. Do not swear. Is that correct? We're not, we're not to, to swear. When I, when I was commissioned as a state trooper, I stood in the Capitol Rotunda, and we raised our right hand, and we solemnly swore to enforce the laws of the state of Washington. If you are in uh, probably in very, the mayor, I would imagine the mayor has to, the chief of police has to, they swear them in. Is that appropriate? It says here, do not swear at all. So how do we reconcile that? What, what, what is he, Jesus really telling us here? Because on, on a host of occasions, even in society now, we swear to do something or swear not to do something. In fact, perjury is still a crime in itself. And we've heard a lot about perjury in the, in the, with the impeachments and, and with the testimony and all this. Is, it is even a crime if you lie in court, you can be charged with perjury, and that carries a penalty all of its own. But now I want to take the other end of the spectrum. I talked about, the, you know, the, the, the working in public life or political life, uh, being a police chief or a mayor, well now, or the courts, and we go over here and we have gang of criminals. And many times they will lie through their teeth to police officers all the time. But even they know that in certain times the truth is required, and amongst themselves they'll generally tell the truth because they realize and understand the value of truth. That sometimes you just need this in order for the world to operate correctly. Individually, men are inclined to the truth, oftentimes only when it benefits them. Yet collectively, they have always known something of its importance and its rightfulness. There was once an English author who says, Truth is the object of philosophy, but not always of philosophers. True. There was a guy by the name of Daniel Webster. He said, there is nothing so powerful as truth, and often nothing so strange. Yeah, because if you have somebody that... You, you've done a, a transaction or you've made some sort of a interaction with people and they come back and they say, listen, I just want to clarify. What I told you wasn't exactly the truth and you're going, really? They would do that. It's almost strange in our society when somebody would come back and they would try to make something right. Now, referring to the passage of today, the Jews revered the idea of truth in principle. They revered the idea of truth, but in practice, it was buried under a system of traditions. And with each century, these traditions had gradually cut 
God's law down to fit their own ideas and perspectives and purposes. So what did they do? Well, before I get into this, Jesus deals in three areas in this passage. I mean, briefly, Jesus sets down the original teachings of Moses. That's what these verses, what I just read. First, it's the original teachings of Moses. He says, you've heard it said, do not break your oath. That's the original teachings of Moses. Then Jesus went on to talk about the traditional perversion of that. He says, but you, he says, I don't swear at all, but what you do is you swear by Jerusalem, you swear by heaven, you swear by uh, the earth, you swear by a whole host of things, even the hair on your head. That's what you, so first, what did Moses say? What do you do and what are you supposed to do? He says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Jesus was not speaking against an oath, but against the abuses of the oath and the corresponding abuse of the truth that went with them. We're going to look at that a little bit closer detail in a minute. But referring to your uh, outline in your bulletin, <coughs> the uh, first line, an oath, is simply a promise. That's all it is. An oath is simply a promise. We have a clear description of an oath in the book of Hebrews. That would be Hebrews 6.16. 6, Hebrews 6.16 6, says this. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. Now, I would suspect that most of you are a lot smarter than me, but I had to read this passage a lot of times before I really understood what it said. And I, if this is the first time you've heard it, you're kind of going, that's really great, he's qu quoting scripture, but I have no clue what he just said. So I'm just going to give you a quick explanation. It says, for men swear by one greater than themselves. That means that you'll, you'll swear by either God or Jerusalem or somebody who you think is somebody or something you think is superior to you to give what you just said credibility. And you are holding that person or thing responsible to avenge if you lie. So what happens is people in this Hebrews passage is saying that the name of God is invoked and by calling God, inviting God to watch over this oath, it's taking something greater than yourself. And because we know that God will avenge it if a lie, he makes an end to every dispute. That's the end of the conversation. If God is going to avenge if you a lie, that's the end of the dispute. Don't worry about it. And people would go, okay, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So you say you're going to promise something and use God, to, you invoke the name of God, to avenge if it's a lie, and the person hearing it goes, yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. Okay. It's an end of every dispute. It's done. There's no, no more conversation. That's what this passage means. So, God, but we see in Scripture that God approved of and he provided for the making of oaths in his name. And I thought, it would be beneficial for you to see the host of areas where God did this because it comes back to, I'll ask the question, he says, don't swear at all. But yet I'll give you a host of examples. It says Abraham and the king of Sodom. Abraham and the king of Sodom. It's uh, in brevity, 
Lot was taken prisoner, all of his belongings. Abraham went and recaptured Lot, all of his, saved Lot, all his belongings, and he told the king of Sodom that I will not take one penny as compensation for what I did because you can never be able to say that you made Abraham rich. And Abraham made an oath in that regard. He says, I solemnly swear that this will not happen, and I gave the corresponding verse where you can find it. You'll see where Abraham was with Abimelech, and if you skip one, you'll see that uh, Jake, or Isaac took an oath with Abimelech as well. In between, Abraham's servant Eliezer is getting a wife for Isaac, and he swore that he would get the, the wife from the relatives of Abraham and not from the tribes of Canaan. Jacob and Laban, the swearing of <clears throat> the Lord will watch between you and I and watch if I abuse my family or if you abuse the family. So there was, there was an oath taken. <clears throat> David and Jonathan. David makes an oath in Psalm 131. And then we move to the bottom portion. It says God himself makes oaths on numerous occasions. He made an oath to Abraham in Genesis 22. And this was a three-part oath. It was, I will give you the land. You will have many descendants, and you will be a blessing to all people. That was a three-part oath. <clears throat> we see that Hebrews explains that since God could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Also, God said he would never destroy the earth again. He was, he was sending a redeemer to raise his son from the dead, to preserve and eventually bless Israel. And I would imagine if I wanted to look further, I could find a host of other ones. But you get the point. God used oaths himself, his, himself, and he provided for the use of oaths in his name by others. Abraham, Isaac, uh, Jacob, David, and there was others. So, if God approved and provided for the making of oaths in his name, what did he mean in this passage where he said, do not swear at all? Well, I'll answer that. This is an allusion to the third commandment in Exodus 20. It, the, that's, that is the third commandment, is do not take false oaths, do not lie, do not take God's name in vain. But what the point is, the Bible is not prohibiting the use of oaths because they are evil, but rather the motivation as to why one would engage in why one would engage in using them simply tell the truth. Why, he's saying, why would you do this? But there was even a little bit more than that. Clearly, if a person is going to make an oath, and I have on numerous occasions, especially in court, you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to live up to that. And other oaths that you may or may not have taken, if you make an oath, it is a good thing to keep it. However, not swearing because one word was good as an oath is even better. So let's say you have a person over here and they... They make an oath, and they say, may God do this and that. And you go, okay. And then you have a person over here, and they say, I'm telling you, I'm going to tell the truth. And that person has such a reputation that their word is stronger than the word who invoked an oath. 
this person is known that when they say something, you can take it to the bank. They're never going to lie. That's what God is essentially saying, is let your word be so truthful, you don't need to invoke an oath. In fact, if you did, it would diminish what you're promising because your word is so good, you would never have to use an oath. Whereas over here, you use an oath to bolster your word because maybe people go, hmm, are they really trying to... Here, let me, let me swear by this or this or this to bolster my words because apparently my words on their own are not that trustworthy. <clears throat> let one's word carry such conviction that they don't need to call on deities as a witness our words should tell the truth to the hearers and have more value than those who use an oath. But here's the deal that was going on in Jesus' day. Jesus addresses a popular abuse of oaths in his day. So what had apparently happened is people's word became less and less believable in the time of Jesus. It was a slow erosion and became less and less. So what people started to do is they'd say, well, I will. I will start using a practice of using surrogate objects where I will, I will swear by this church. I will swear upon everything that's holy. I will swear upon something. But they didn't use the word God. They used Jerusalem and earth. They used their hair. They used something like this. And what, what that was is it, was it was taking their promises less casually. In addition, they did not want to have the anger of God fall upon them, so they didn't invoke the name of God. They used the name of something other than God because they thought, well, if I swear by Jerusalem, only Jerusalem will be offended. If I swear by the earth, then only the earth will be offended, but not God. If I swear by the hair in my head, then I'm not offending anybody because I'm not using the name of God to use an oath. It was a way to kind of weasel out of what you were saying, and you knew that God or the deities would not be offended because I didn't use their name. I used, what did it, what does it say? Heaven, God's throne, uh, earth, uh, Jerusalem, uh, swear by your head or your hair. These were all things that were not God. So technically they were saying God could not bring his wrath down on me because I'm not using him. I'm using something else. It was just a little bit of a, a deceptive way of getting around it. In fact, there were at this particular time sages, or we would know them as teachers, they had, their, their, some of their work had evolved into canceling bad vows. If you made a bad vow and you were able to get out of it, there were certain teachers in the Old Testament who were accorded the, the privilege of canceling these vows. But we're going to go on. Jesus teaches that all oaths invoke God's witness equally, whether you use the name of God the name of Jesus Christ, Jerusalem, earth, or anything else, it is equally 
giving God witness. Just as heaven, earth, and Jerusalem belong to God, so do the hairs on one's head. And no one, in spite of what they do, going to the hairdresser, no one has genuine control over aging. They have no genuine control over aging. All oaths implicitly call God to witness because everything that exists was made by him. Now, in the time of Palestine, where Jesus was at, there were two unsatisfactory things about taking oaths. There were two things that were unsatisfactory. The first one was frivolous swearing. This was the unnecessary or improper use of swearing. And I'll give you an example. It's, let's say you were a servant in the time of Jesus and you were working in your servant's home and you would say, the honorable house of my servant, the honorable table of my servant, the honorable chinaware of my servant, the honorable mop of my servant, the honorable uh, bucket of my servant, and everything began with the honorable of my servant, how much value would that have when you, when you actually looked and you introduced your honorable master? Because he's calling everything honorable. He's calling the dish mop. He's calling the, the, the floor. He's calling the chair. Everything is honorable, so it reduces the value. It's frivolous swearing. It's frivolous addressing. Everything is the honorable. So when you really say the honorable to the real thing, it really doesn't mean much. Because he also calls everything that. Everything and everyone that. So that was one inappropriate way of taking oaths or of addressing. The second one was the evasive swearing. Is one does not want to swear by the Lord, because it's wrong, you don't want to swear by the Lord, so they would actually use things or places or people. And this class of an oath was considered to be not binding, such as, I will swear by my own life. I will swear on your health or on my health. I will swear by the king, or as we see in the passage today, I'll swear by earth, heaven, the temple, Jerusalem by my hair, or something like this. It was the evasive swearing. And what Jesus is saying is do not swear at all. If you're going to be using it inappropriately, don't swear at all. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. You don't have to bolster it with pointing to a deity or some other related thing. The point that Jesus was making was that God is the creator and the Lord of everything. And he's the God of truth and everything. To carelessly and dishonestly call any part of his creation as witness to a false oath was to dishonor God himself, whether or not his name was invoked. God has no separate categories of sacred and secular. Everything that pertains to him is sacred. And all truth is his truth, just as all creation is his creation. Every lie is against God, and therefore every false oath dishonors his name. There was a guy by the name of William Barclay, again, one of those dead guys. That was a religious dead guy. He states, here is a great eternal truth. Life cannot be divided into compartments in some of which God is involved, and in others of which he is not involved. There cannot be one kind of language in the church, 
and another kind of language in the shipyard or the factory or the office. There cannot be one kind of conduct in the church and another kind of conduct in the business world. The fact is that God does not need to be invited into certain departments of life and kept out of others. He is everywhere, all through life and in every activity of life. He hears not only the words which are spoken in his name, he hears all words. And there cannot be any such thing as a form of words which evades bringing God into any transaction. We will regard all promises as sacred if we remember that all promises are made in the presence of God. And that nails it. If you have made an oath, you have not done something wrong. Keep your oath. Do not make a frivolous oath to bolster what your words are. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. It is interesting when you look at society, and we've all seen it, why does it take 30 pages of documents and a dozen signatures to complete a transaction to buy a house? If you want to get a loan, and I get it, I get it, there's all these legal things, but it's all because people have weaseled out of a commitment. There was a guy that I once knew that he, he sold a particular product, and when he originally took the job, he signed a, no, a non-compete clause, he, meaning if he ever left that company, he could not sell that product somewhere else for a year. Well, I always found it puzzling. He quit the company, and he was quite pleased that the company couldn't find the sheet of paper that he had signed. So he said, I'm free from my obligation. They couldn't find the piece of paper that said it was a non-compete. And besides, they made me sign it, so therefore, I can go do what I want to do because they couldn't find the document. So I get it why banks and businesses and all this, they have all these these procedures and signatures and, and firewalls, I get it. But it seems sad. Why cannot your yes be yes and your no, no? Avoiding oaths is inadequate, and it's not the point. The issue is telling the truth because God witnesses every word we speak. That's why we do what we do. I'm going to make one more. You remember when you were kids? For some of us, that's a long time ago. Not for me. For some of us, it was a long time. <laughs> Is oaths were an invitation to put penalty on yourself if you didn't tell the truth. And I had to smile when I read this because I went, I remember that. Cross my heart and hope to die. Right? We did that. Now I think we did that in a playful way. But that's the point, is you are making an oath, saying, if I don't do what I just said, then this is what's going to happen. And, but you get the point, is we, we would use that. Jesus never took an oath. And I can give you places when he was before the Sanhedrin, and they said, swear before God that, what you are, that are you Jesus, the Son of God? And all he would say, yes, it is as you say. Matthew 26, verse 63. He would never swear. And even James seems to say 
that he is in tradi the tradition of Jesus. He says, above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. I'm going to segue now into communion. And we're going to read a little bit and we're going to talk a little bit about Judas, who was someone who was a liar. He was deceptive. And he fits with what we're saying today. And I'm going to, I'm going to read a couple portions out of a, a few different passages. And we're kind of as, for those of you that may be visiting, as we take communion once a month, and each, each time we take communion, I'm trying to give a segment of the communion process of how we got here. What was the story, the communion story? What did it look like? And and I'm going to been reading from a variety of passages, but this time I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 26. I'm going to start at verse 14, and you can just listen along with me as I talk. It says in verse 14, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty silver coins, and from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Just so you know, that 30 pieces, those 30 silver coins, was the price of a slave. Zechariah 11, verse 12. There's also another one in Exodus 21. It was the price of a slave that our Savior was paid for. It goes on in verse 17. It says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make the preparations for you to eat the Passover. And Jesus replied, go into the city to a certain man. And Jesus went into the city and found a certain man. And Mark recounts that story for us. And that certain man was easy to be found because he was carrying a jar of water and men never carried water. So he was easy to find. And they said to the man, the teacher says, my appointment time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. And I'm in, obviously I'm interjecting in between the, the, the various verses. But you need to realize that it had been 1,500 years the Passover had been celebrated. 1,500 years before this, they consistently every year celebrated the Passover. This was before the law was written, before the priesthood, before the tabernacle before the sacrificial system, this night that I'm reading right here marked the end of the original Passover. The feasts and the rituals and the priesthood of the economic, of the Mosaic economy all pointed forward to the great high priest, Jesus, who would offer one sacrifice for sin forever. And once this passage is done, once it's been written, from that day forward, people will look back and remember and celebrate the death of Jesus. And that's what we're doing today. So what I'm reading here was 1,500 years before the time of Jesus. And faithfully, the Passover has been, has been carried out. It goes on. When the evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. This would be on the floor, a very, very low table. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. 
And they were very sad and began to say to one another, one to one after the other, surely not I, Lord. And Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And I'm going to skip over to a, a passage in John. A passage in John looks at it in a slightly different way because what happened is when they were sitting at the table, when they were reclining at the table, Jesus says this, and then Judas, I'm, I'm continuing in Matthew, then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Lord. Yeah, he knew. And Jesus answered, Yes, it is you. Now I'm going to go to a John, the John passage, and Jesus, I'll start at midway. It says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. And his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, believed to be John, was reclining next to Jesus. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, John, and said, ask him which one he means. So it's believed that they were around the table, and they really didn't hear what was going on with the other one, because Peter's like, ask him, ask him which one. And so... John leans over, he says, leans back against Jesus, and he asks, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And essentially, his doom was sealed. Jesus says, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the, to the poor. And as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. Judas was a deceiver. Judas also knew where they could find Jesus because if we go a couple chapters more in John 18, it says, when Jesus had finished praying, he left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Sally and I were right there. We were in Jerusalem. There's a steep hill, a little bottom to the valley, and it came up the other side, and right there is the garden. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus often met there with his disciples. That was the day Sal and I prayed for our son, who had testicular cancer. I've used the expression, you're at or near, where Jesus was, was betrayed. We were right there. Right there. That is right where Jesus was betrayed because often he went there and Judas would meet there and he deceived his Savior. Can you believe it? Can you believe that you would do that? That is amazing to me. Going back to Matthew chapter 26. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, before we, we partake, it says here, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks. Skipping a couple lines, it says, then he took the, top, the cup and he gave thanks. Wow, he was going to die. And his body was the bread, symbolically. His blood was the juice, symbolically. He gave thanks. And in the Catholic circles, they use the Greek word Eucharisto, which we get the word Eucharist, which means give thanks. That's where we get that. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And that's what we're going to do. The Luke passage, it says, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake.
Matthew says, Then Jesus took the cup and gave thanks and offered to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for 